Dr. Kristen Oja here, entrepreneur and functional medicine expert. Welcome to Little By Podcast, where our goal is to empower you to achieve optimal health, one step and one episode at a time. Taking a functional medicine approach will cover a variety of health and wellness topics, from how to optimize performance to how to balance your hormones and everything in between. This podcast is for educational purposes only, so please be sure to consult your healthcare provider before incorporating any changes into your daily routine. Now grab your headphones and let's go for a walk as we take steps towards becoming your best self. Today's podcast is all about biohacking. Our guest today is Kayla, and she is a health scientist, professional athlete, entrepreneur, health optimization practitioner, and a global leader in integrative mind-body medicine. She is formally trained across the spectrum of health sciences with a Bachelor of Science in Health Ecology, a Master's of Science in Public Health, and she is currently pursuing her doctoral degree in neuropsychophysiology. She is the host of the BioCurious podcast, which you guys have to tune into. She is the owner and CEO of BioCurious and co-founder, director of research and development for the Power Program for Women. And that is Power spelled P-O-W-H-E-R. Make sure to get a piece of paper out and take notes. This is an episode that I just love. Kayla, welcome to the Little Bi Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited that you started this podcast because you have such an amazing network of people with very interesting areas of expertise, not to mention your own expertise, which blows my mind all the time. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And I love your podcast. You guys really need to tune in and listen to her BioCurious podcast. It's uh, a wealth of information too. So one of the things that uh, we didn't talk about in Kayla's introduction right there is that she worked with the CDC before kind of pursuing her own business as uh, the BioCurious Kayla, which is her Instagram. So what What led you to kind of leave the CDC and start your own thing? Yeah, so I really loved my work at CDC and it was such a great opportunity for growth and to really get to understand health systems from behind the curtain, Um, you know, further than I got in my in my master's degree, researching and understanding public health systems, um, really getting to the nitty gritty of of how they work, what makes them function, and also what makes them dysfunction. Um, it was was really a necessary step in my career path. Um, I was there for almost seven years. Um, and during that time, I worked in mostly global health. I worked in cardiovascular health for a couple years on the Global Hearts Initiative, standing up cardiovascular disease programs in Mongolia, Brazil, and in Africa. And then I worked on also all of the responses. So um, emergency responses, I worked on the Zika response, and then I worked on the Ebola response. And then right before I left in March of last year, I worked um, just just briefly on the COVID response. And so um, a couple of reasons why I left. One is um, where my passion lies is in this field of biohacking, or you could call it holistic health, integrative health, health optimization medicine. This is where my passion lies. And it's also my belief that this is how our populations will become healthy. Unfortunately, when you're looking at a big public health system or health system in general, or the insurance model, you are looking at a system that disempowers the individual. Because these systems are designed for the population level, they just simply cannot address the needs and keep in mind the best interest of each individual. It's just not possible to to put out a program that spreads across an entire population and does that as well. So true health optimization and the way that we are going to build healthier populations comes down to the individual level. And that's the area that I'm working on now. And specifically, my areas of passion and expertise are in the fields of, for instance, neuropsychology, looking at the uh, brain correlates 
of mental well-being and looking at how the brain and the mind interact to essentially create the um, the experience of reality that each human um, experiences, which is bio-individual to each person. And the other area that I love and work in all the time and love to talk about and teach about is women's health. I love when you said disempowers the patient. I've really never thought of that term. Uh, we use empower and power, but the exact opposite, that disempower. And that is one of my favorite things about what you do with biohacking and this health optimization. It puts the control back on the patient or the client. And that is why I'm so excited because these are actionable things that people can do. And that is so empowering to know that some of the changes you make within your lifestyle can make a difference. Uh, and so I really like kind of thinking about the conventional model I think is great when it comes to cardiovascular surgery, like once somebody needs open heart surgery, it can be life saving. But these annual physicals that you just go in for that 15 minutes, it can be very disempowering. And I really, I like that word disempowering. And so um, as we get into this podcast, hopefully, you guys are gonna feel very empowered on things that you can do to kind of optimize your own health. And you mentioned the women's health is something that you become really passionate about. Uh, tell us a little bit about the power program that you guys just launched. Yeah, so um, our power program and any woman who's interested, you can find more information at powerprogram.org and that's power with an H. So like pow her. It's a cute little uh, way that we um, like to, to really empower women. And this is actually stands for personalization of women's health evidence and research. And that's what our program is. So this is really highlighting that aspect of bioindividuality. This is the very first fully comprehensive bioindividual and data-driven health program for women. And um, it brings together all the best aspects of health coaching, that one-on-one -on -one support, education, and actually the women in the program will get a master's level education in their own personal health. And it brings in all the latest research and highlights the research gap, which there are many, unfortunately. Um, and we're doing some really interesting women's health research through this program that will hopefully help to close the women's health research gap. And in addition to that, it is all driven by data. So we are doing comprehensive women's health lab testing, which is one of the parts that I am so, so, so excited about as the lead researcher and scientist on the team, because as you know very well, to get comprehensive biometrics lab panels done for women, you have to go to about eight different lab companies around just in the US. And to get all of these labs done in one shot is gonna cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. And not to mention you have to retest and you have to retest to know how well you're doing. Um, and we actually partnered with a lab out of South Carolina that has the capacity to do every single biometric. There's about 115 that we're looking at. and they will be able to do it all in one place, which doesn't exist anywhere in the world. And we're super excited about um, kind of just forging the path for women. And we hope that this test eventually will be the gold standard for women's health and be found in every functional doc's office um, eventually as, as this builds. But that is the crux and the basis of our program is test, assess, address, don't guess, and make sure that you are understanding how your body is adjusting and adapting to the interventions that you put into play for your body. Gosh, you just made me want to sign up. Uh, you know, with us at Stat Wellness, taking a functional medicine approach, I want to learn about these 115. You said 115 markers? Yeah, I think it's it's over 100. I think it's 115 that we're looking at in total. And that's including um, all of the regular like CBC blood panels, um, as well as hormones. And we're looking at um, your neurochemistry. We're looking at some DNA testing metrics as well. Um, we're looking at biological age and um, and we're looking at some some more of the esoteric labs is what they call them. But um, these will tell you about uh, like the epigenetic side. 
So for the biological age, are you looking at telomere lengths? Um, we are working with a company. Have you ever heard of uh, Nutrigenomics? Yes. Love Nutrigenomics. Okay. So, yeah. So they do a biological age panel and we're trying to get through the the same lab um, to do a basically the same um, panel all what? in one with everything else. Gosh, I think that's awesome. So when you say, just for the listeners, there's chronological age. So if you are 36, mm-hmm. you are 36 years old. But your biological age, you could be a lot younger or older, depending on how you take care of yourself. So um, I- Yeah, yeah. So for instance, with me, I can give an example. When I was 30, um, I was on the outside, looked really healthy. Obviously, I look 30. I look young. And on the inside, um, I was probably 60 year old because of the fact that my adrenals were burned out. I was pushing myself so hard physically. I was not learning and listening and balancing my female hormone cycle and balancing my lifestyle approaches with that. Um, and when I had gotten my, uh, Dutch test, which is a hormone panel, Love the Dutch. all of my hormones, yeah, all of my hormones were basically zero. I had nothing going on. And my functional doctor was confused, um, how I was even functioning at the level that I was with basically no hormones going on. And she was like, you know, you're a 30 year old woman, but you're basically a 60 year old woman on the inside. Gosh. And so what, what did you do with that information when you got it? Did you, is that when you really got into biohacking and kind of rebuilding yourself or were you just looking for other functional medicine experts or maybe your current functional medicine provider to help? Was this kind of where you started learning some of the biohacking techniques? Yeah. So I was working with a functional doctor and unfortunately, um, the one I was working with was not, uh, considering my female biorhythms, my bio individuality, um, and wasn't really giving me guidance on that. Um, so I kind of set out on my own being a researcher and knowing how to kind of dive through the research and being a biohacker where I have all these different tools and I know that my environment affects my biology. So at that point I had, I had to really deal with my stress levels. That's where it all, that's where it all boiled down. Um, my stress was too high, whether it be eustress or distress, and it was overflowing past my stress threshold, and it was making me very sick and burning out my adrenals and also flatlining all of my sex hormones as well. And at that point, I had to basically remove a lot of things from my life that I wanted to keep and I thought were very healthy, like running you know, 30 to 100 miles per week biking as much as well, doing really restrictive types of diets, um, doing things like cold thermogenesis, where you're really kind of shocking the nervous system, which is a form of positive stress, positive hormetic stress, but it it's not a form of positive stress if your stress threshold is already surpassed. I had to um, reevaluate my relationships and I had to really prioritize sleep. And those were some of the things that really helped me to get my health back on track. But the biggest thing was understanding my hormone cycle and designing my day and my routine around the specific needs and changes that happen in each phase of my hormone cycle. That was really the game changer and understanding when it's important to get more rest, when it's okay to push a little harder, when it is appropriate to drink the extra cup of coffee and take the nootropics, and when it's not appropriate to do that um, are all examples of how I kind of balanced that cycle. That's amazing. And we're going to get into the female cycle a little bit further in this podcast. But I want to kind of go back to the beginning, because I know you use some different kind of synonyms for biohacking. But when someone asks you, what is biohacking? How do you define that? Yeah, so biohacking is a lot 
um, simpler and less scary than it sounds. <laughs> but it's basically just taking control and changing your environment. And that means your external environment, which could be toxins in your environment, in your environment, it could be the air quality, it could be the relationships in your life, it could be um, the, the light, natural light or lack thereof. And your internal environment, like your gut microbiome, what's going on with your neurotransmitters, what kinds of foods and supplements are you putting in, what kind of um, rest are you getting, and that kind of thing. And when you change your environment, as we know through the field of epigenetics, you actually change your biology. And doing this in such a manner that you change your biology in specific um, with specific goals in mind, that's what biohacking is. And I really, I want to get very specific on some of the biohacking techniques that you utilize on a regular mm -hmm. basis. So I was thinking we could kind of even, uh, I don't know if a daily or a weekly basis is better, but kind of uh, tell us some of the biohacking techniques that you utilize and, and try to be as specific as possible for our listeners. Yeah, so I can just kind of run through a day. Um, but again, my days change depending on where, where I am in my hormone cycle and what my stress levels are. Um, and that is kind of affects the decisions that I make. Um, and I also use my own data to drive my decision making. But um, I'll just kind of go through like what I did today. So um, this morning, I have a pretty robust morning routine that sets me up for success for the day. And it's full of all different kinds of biohacks. So starting out when I first wake up, I keep a dream journal, and I just write down a few things, insights that might have come to me in my dreams, or just try to recall um, what what had occurred if I had any dreams the night before. This is helpful for my memory. Um, and it also, sometimes I, I have insights or ideas that are relevant later in my day that, uh, that um, if I write them down, I won't forget them from a dream. Um, after that, I usually, like everybody else, take a shower. And at this point, I've, I've, healed my hormones and gotten to a healthy level where I can do some nervous system training. So I like to finish the last about two minutes of my shower with a cold blast. And this is just helping, helping to strengthen my nervous system and helping me to strengthen my ability to self-regulate. Um, after that, I go outside and I do a bit of a meditation. This Sometimes it's a guided meditation. Sometimes it is um, just a quiet, silent meditation. Um, I do some form of meditation. And then I usually do 20 minutes of breath work. Um, and the type I do is intermittent hypoxic breath work, which helps with um, blood oxygen um, and circulation throughout your body. And it also is an energetic type of breath work. Um, so I do that to get my energy up, help my blood circulation um, before I hop into work and unfortunately sit or stand for a long period of time. I do have a standing desk, so that's I can switch between the two. Um, and then I come down and I take my morning supplements. Right now, I'm actually doing a liver detox um, with a company. It's called Quicksilver, um, and they have a pretty a pretty cool um, push catch system. So I'm doing that um, for this month, and um, and then after I'm finished with that process, I have my supplements and my coffee, which I include different things in my coffee. Sometimes I put collagen protein. I pretty much always put MCT oil to support my brain health in the morning. Um, and some other things, cinnamon, turmeric, sometimes some antioxidants and different things like that. And then I hop into my work and I like to wear while I'm on screens, uh, my blue blocking glasses to help protect my hormone health and to reduce those stress levels throughout the day. Um, and then somewhere during the day, I like to get a movement practice in, whether that be running, biking, or just yoga, again, depending on my stress 
uh, levels and where I am in my hormone cycle. Um, and then after I'm done with work and after dinner, I like to uh, have a practice of winding down before bed. And so I think a nighttime routine is really important to set you up for success in the next day. Um, so I like to wind myself down. Sometimes I'll do some self-hypnosis, um, which is something that I am um, studying in my doctoral program. Um, and sometimes I'll do a meditation. And right now I'm actually... Um, working with a company on doing some interesting research. It's called um, Halo, and it is a PEMF device. So I'm doing a little self-experimentation with that right now before bed to um, hopefully improve my deep sleep. And I track all of that with my bio strap that I wear at night to track my sleep biometrics, which the most important ones are I'm looking at deep sleep, I'm looking at my blood oxygen levels, heart rate, uh, resting heart rate, and um, heart rate variability to see how well rested my body is. And that helps me to make decisions for the next day. Man, that is a great daily routine. And I know it shifts depending on where you are in your cycle. So we'll kind of get into some of those swaps that you make. But really even kind of starting in the morning, if if our listeners don't have access to see like what their cortisol curve looks like or how their stress looks from a data-driven standpoint, is there a way for our listeners to identify whether cold shower is a good thing or a bad thing for them? Is there any um, maybe some symptoms that they could feel or is there a way to identify if it's appropriate to add that in or do you recommend starting with a shorter period of time and like working up to that two minutes? Um, I think starting with a shorter period of time and working your way up is always good um, just because it's a little hard and it's, it would be kind of unsustainable if you just jump right in and you don't enjoy the process. Um, as you build your capacity and your nervous system is able to self-regulate faster, you can build up that time. But just as you mentioned, I don't think it's an appropriate practice for everyone because it does add a level of stress, whereas like meditation is not going to hurt anyone. So um, with with the ones that are more of like those hormetic stressors that are usually, you know, you stress, they're positive stress, um, but they do contribute to your stress threshold. I would say just keeping a journal about how you feel. If you're experiencing things like brain fog, energy crashes, um, major changes in your mood, major changes in your appetite or cravings, um, those are pretty good signs that your stress threshold has been surpassed. And you might want to look into, um, at that point, uh, especially depending on the severity of your symptoms, you might want to look into um, getting some lab work done. Um, again, I'm a data person, so I don't like guessing. I like to look at what's going on and address it. Yes, I like that in your intro. I am too. Uh, I think data is powerful. Knowledge is power. Yeah. Uh, I'm starting to do the cold shower. It took me a long time to get into doing that just because I love a hot shower. Uh, so I really am only at about 30 seconds at the end. And it does depend on uh, my stress levels and my sleep quality. I've been doing it a little less having a three-month-old because I'm not getting good uninterrupted sleep each night. So I know that's playing a role on my cortisol. But um, it is amazing, you know, even that 10, 20 seconds when I feel like it's appropriate can make a big difference in the start of my day when it comes to my energy, my mental clarity. Uh, and I think it's really helping kind of get that cortisol awakening response first thing in the morning with that shock of the cold. And what about the MCT oil? Do you, is there mm -hmm. a certain amount that you do? Do you do like a tablespoon in the morning or did you have to gradually work up? Because I know MCT oil for some people can cause loose stool. Yeah, um, definitely. So a lot of the people that I work with who want to try this out, um, I always recommend that they start with a little bit and work their way up. Um, I do about two tablespoons every day, but I've been doing this for years now and um, it doesn't, I don't have any effect from it. Um, but if you're just starting out, I would start with, you know, a teaspoon, two teaspoons, three teaspoons, and even just one tablespoon in the morning is going to be um, significantly helpful for your brain function. And it can really help to boost the biosynthesis of your phospholipids, especially if you're getting choline as well, which will just help with brain function. Gosh, I love choline. Is, have yes. you seen any data with these medium chain triglycerides or the MCT and cholesterol? Do you have any thoughts there? 
Um, I've looked at the research on that and I don't see any evidence for either like improving or or making it worse. Um, there's there's arguments for both, but when you look at the research, I don't see really evidence of harming or helping significantly. Um, though I do, the reason why I do it is for brain function, but also as you know, um, it's important for our for our female hormones as well to make sure that we're getting enough healthy fats and um, and healthy amount of carbohydrates during specific phases of our cycle. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a something that a lot of people don't realize is that really healthy fats is the foundation for our hormone levels. So that cholesterol yeah. becomes pregnenolone, which splits down into some of the other uh, hormones and, and really kind of activates that whole hormone cascade. So I think that is a, a great point. So uh, thinking kind of about some dietary changes, because I think that's something you know, we really believe food is medicine and we can really influence our overall health and wellness by what we put in our mouth. And my whole thing is, and this podcast is little by little, little becomes a lot. And these small changes over time can lead to total uh, body mind uh, transformation. And one of the big things I like to focus on is really how to optimize our athletic and our mental performance. Uh, is there anything, whether from the data or what you've personally experienced with, is there any uh, dietary changes that you have found to be really effective? Or you may say, well, really, some of these dietary changes are good for both. So I think the the major helpful dietary changes are going to be helpful for both. And so a few key things, um, we already hit on the importance of getting enough healthy fats. And I think because of the low fat diet fad and trends, especially in the female population um, that happened in the 90s and the 2000s, um, I think we're trying to now bounce back from that as a society. So getting enough healthy fats is really key. Um, and then monitoring carbohydrates, but I'm not really a fan of low carb diet for everyone. Um, I know that that's really popular right now. I d I'm not a huge fan of that, especially for women um, who need periods of carbohydrate refeeding. Um, but more important than that, I would say is just high quality food in general. So making sure that your food is not toxin toxic um so anything that is pre-packaged um anything that is frozen unfortunately a lot of those things that you find in boxes that are frozen or boxes in your cupboard are highly processed and um not very not very nutritious for you so you may be getting a lot of calories but you may not be getting very many nutrients um so outside of that i think the other biggest thing is timing of food. I think if, if somebody was going to make, not willing to make any dietary changes, but they were willing to change the timing of their food, they could actually see a lot of benefit without actually changing what they're eating or the amount that they're eating, but just changing when they're eating. And so with this, um, it's really important that our body has periods to rest from physical the physical digestion uh, process where you're actually breaking down the food that comes into your belly um, before it is processed and kind of sent to where it needs to be sent throughout your body. Um, the process of resource allocation can't happen if you're constantly trying to break down, do the initial first step and put all your energy and resources into that, just breaking down the food. So giving the body times where it gets a break from food, which can be hard if you're eating three square meals a day. I personally don't do that. Um, and, but I'm, I'm, I have no qualms with eating that way. Um, but I think what is important is having enough of a break between your last meal of the day and your first meal of the next day. And then um, having food at least two hours, I would say I would prefer three to four hours before you go to bed so that that process of digestion and resource allocation doesn't impact your sleep. And if you kind of validated this with your wearables, do you play around with the timing that you eat and some of the biometrics oh, yeah. you were talking about? Okay. So what is kind of that window for you? Do you look for 14 hours, 16 hours, 12 hours between your dinner and breakfast? I usually always shoot 
or 12. And then there are time periods where I'll go 16 or 20 even. Um, and sometimes when I do 20, it's more of like an OMOD situation, one meal a day. But I don't do this regularly. Um, so for instance, during menstruation, when all of your hormones are at their lowest point, and a lot of women will experience um, cravings and different things during, during that period, um, it's actually useful uh, not to fast during that period. And so during that phase, I don't fast. Um, and then there are other phases, um, like during the beginning of my luteal phase and during uh, ovulation, where I will fast because it actually helps me to feel a lot more mentally sharp. And, um, and so I'll stretch that from a 12-hour fast overnight to more of a 16- or 20-hour fast overnight. Um, so it kind of just depends. But, um, but yes, having at least 12 hours really, really helps to improve my level of deep sleep and my heart rate variability um, which is the metric of how well rested are you in the morning. Um, and then on the other side at night, I do best when I have four hours between my dinner time and when I go to bed. Um, I don't know if that's the same for everyone. Um, I know at least two hours is what's recommended. Um, but for me, if I have four hours between dinner and bedtime, I sleep way better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, you go back to the sympathetic parasympathetic state. And you know, you really, you want to be able to rest and be fully digested. So I I'm with you minus four hours when I feel the best, just because you're not able to truly get into that deep sleep if your body is working so hard to break down the foods. So mm -hmm. I guess if somebody had a, a faster digestive process, maybe two hours would be okay. But I'm with you four is kind of my magic number. So when you're talking about the menstrual cycle, let's kind of break that down. So a female cycle typically being 28 days, you've got the follicular ovulation and luteal phase. So you were talking about how you will kind of stretch out your fast a little bit uh, during ovulation and into that luteal phase. Are you thinking like day like 14 to 28, that is like your optimal longer fasting window? Or is it not that full two weeks? Uh, it's definitely not the full two weeks. It For me, um, I feel best and I've played around with this with my own self-experimentation and tracking my cycle, which is what I would recommend for any woman. Um, I'm usually about five or six days. I'll do that longer fast before I go back into my regular 12 hour. But that's just what works best for me. And I'm, uh, again, a data nerd. So I'm always tracking and seeing what works best for me and then also tracking how I feel and how I perform athletically. So, um, so that, that's what works for me and that's not what works for every woman. And also, um, I just want to point out that, um, not every woman's cycle is 28 days. In fact, all of the women that I have worked with and polled, nobody's 20. I've never had anybody who's 28 days on the dot. Some women are anywhere from a 20 day to a 40 day. And then some women are, um, in a, kind of uh, in a state of dysfunction with their hormone cycle and they may only experience, you know, three or four periods a year, depending on what's going on with them. So um, it's really just key to start tracking to figure out where you are and how long each of your phases last. Do you have a favorite app for tracking? Yeah, there are a bunch out there. Um, I think Clue is probably my favorite, but I played around with them all. There's My Flow um, is another one, and uh, Natural Cycles is another one. Um, there are a few different ones out there. Some of them use a, a thermometer, which is helpful. I think those are more accurate. Um, and then some are just by putting in like when you're menstruating and like how many days that lasts and then it will estimate how long your cycle is. But then as you have more and more of them, um, it will adjust to what your normal is. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, Clue's the one that I use. I love how you can just at a quick of a click of a button, put in your symptoms, and then it will show you during each part of your cycle in like one screen where you're feeling each thing. So it's so easy to, yeah. to make correlations. So when you pulled everybody and you had people, some at 20-day cycles, some at 40-day cycles, do you think part of that is because our hormones as a society are really imbalanced? Or do you think some people just naturally have different menstrual cycle patterns? 
Um, I think the answer lies somewhere in between those, probably. Um, I think that we have changed epigenetically over time. And um, definitely there's an effect of our lifestyles that we have now where we are indoors most of the time and we're going from, you know, our house box to our car box to our work box to our car box to our house box. And we're not really spending time in nature. We're not disconnected. We have a lot more stressors in our lives. We have EMFs going on from all the technology. We're not getting enough sleep. We're not we're eating highly processed foods and fast foods. Um, so I definitely think that all has a, a, a great impact. And I think maybe not all women naturally would have a 28-day cycle, but I guess we wouldn't know unless we could remove all of the other factors. Right. Because I know with our with my patients, uh, we do a lot of the Dutch test, which is a dried urine mm-hmm. test that looks, and I know you know this, Kayla, but it looks at cortisol at four points during the day. It looks at how you're breaking down estrogen. It looks at progesterone metabolites. It looks at your androgens and neurotransmitters. And it's a, a really fantastic test. But one of the things that I find so often, I don't know if you see this too, but we see a lot of estrogen dominance and low progesterone from kind of our current lifestyle as a society. And just Mm -hmm. to mention those things that you referred to, you know, the we're not exercising as much, we're eating uh, some more inflammatory foods, we're getting hormones in our meat and our dairy products, and um, our stress levels are really high, which can disrupt our progesterone levels. So that is a, a big thing that I see is that estrogen dominance and low progesterone, which can make your your female cycle much more symptomatic. It can make you mm. have much more cramping, more clots in your cycle, heaviness in your cycle. So it's been really, you know, it's interesting to me that um, when I often see really short cycles, I see some low progesterone, some estrogen dominance. When I see some really long cycles, I see more uh, trending towards more of a PCOS type picture or polycystic mm-hmm. ovarian syndrome. So I think it's really, I think, starting by tracking is so important, but uh, I feel like we don't have to have these miserable cycles, um, you know, taking ibuprofen around the clock or not being able to get out of bed during certain parts of your cycle. And I hear women tell me that all the time. And so I love what you're doing, like helping people get familiar with their cycles and learning their body. So hopefully um, it works with them rather than working against them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so maybe it's helpful to um, go back a little bit on this topic and understand why all of these symptomatic dysfunctional things have become normalized in our society. And we as women are kind of trained just to accept that that like PMS is a normal thing and it's okay, even though it's not normal and we don't have to accept it and we can do something about it. And this all of this comes from the fact that women of childbearing potential, meaning any woman who experiencing experiences a hormone cycle have been largely left out of the clinical research. This was actually put into law in 1977 by the FDA that any woman of childbearing potential could not participate in clinical research because they are too risky and difficult research subjects because of our unique bio-individuality and our unique biorhythms that makes it really hard to standardize us, right? So, In the 1990s, that was overturned by women's health activism. But by that point, the damage was done and it was too late. And to this day, women are left out of the research equation. So that means that all of these recommendations that come out through our traditional medical systems um, and that are standardized in our standard protocols and insurance models are largely geared for men, not women, because women are not represented in the research. So this is where women have to become the CEOs of their own body and their own health because they can't rely on the data, the the population level data, like men can. So this is where they have to understand their unique female biochemistry. So when it comes to hormones, the female hormone cycle, like you said, is dominated by two major hormones, estrogen and progesterone, which interact with almost every aspect of our biochemistry, including our metabolism, our neurochemistry, and our bioenergetics. And then when it comes to bioenergetics, 
Estrogen plays a significant role in energy production, regulating glucose transport, and anaerobic glycolysis, and it also interacts with our mitochondrial function to generate ATP. And then when you're looking at our neurochemistry, there are specific regions of the brain that are responsible for emotional regulation and memory, um, namely the hippocampus and the hypothalamus. And these areas of the brain have high densities of estrogen and progesterone receptors, um, which a lot of women don't know. And so as a result, these hormones play a significant role in modulating our neurotransmitter function and cognition. So once we understand kind of the ebb and flow of our, of our biochemistry, biorhythms, and bioenergetics, then we can um, start to optimize our health by doing self-experimentation, essentially, figuring out what works, what doesn't, and tracking and addressing dysfunction and not accepting the standards that have been put out there by society and the research in medical communities, which have really disempowered women because of this research gap. I had no idea that was a law in the 1970s. That's... Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> very horrible. Uh, but I do, I think it's really fascinating to kind of even think about some big things like as a female business owner, you know, what part of my cycle is a better time to put some of those stressful meetings and some of the strategic yes. planning. And, you know, I think that's really mm -hmm. biohacking for females. So you've got the follicular, yes. you've got the ovulation, and you've got the luteal. Let's mm -hmm. talk about the follicular. That's that kind of first half of your cycle. Tell us a little bit about what's happening in our bodies during that follicular phase. Yeah. So during the follicular phase, if we're looking, let's first look at our neurochemistry. So during that phase, we're having hippocampal activation and a boost in our serotonin activity. So we could have a little bit more of like a mood boost during that period. And usually women toward the end of follicular are feeling pretty good because their um, estrogen during this phase is rising steadily. And so at the beginning of the phase, they may have more like low to moderate energy. And by the end of the phase, um, they'll have more heightened energy as long as everything is working as we would expect it would work and their mood will be elevated as well. And so they'll feel pretty good. And towards the end of the phase and into ovulation is actually a great time to push those boundaries, whether it be in your exercise routine, because you're going to have naturally more energy. Um, it would be a great time because of your boost in brain function to, to have that big presentation. Um, but actually during menstruation, which is technically at the very beginning of the follicular phase, they overlap. Um, when all your hormones are at their very lowest level and our energy levels are also very, very low during that period, what we have found by doing brain scans of women during their cycle is that they actually have increased cognitive empathy, meaning they have increased intuition. So while your energy levels are low during that phase, and it's not really appropriate to push push past that by drinking extra coffee, taking the nootropics, pushing really hard physically, it's better to kind of lean into that low energy during that phase to protect your adrenals. Um, but it is a great time for analysis. It's a great time to reprioritize. It's a great time to assess. So each phase kind of has its own little superpower inside if you can optimize your schedule and your day to align with it. You just taught me something I didn't know about that cognitive empathy. Um, yes. That so did yeah. is that from a research study that you know somebody published mm -hmm. this and looked at brain the brains of women while they're menstruating? Who funded that? Do you have any idea? Yes. Um, I don't know who funded it, but there are a couple. Um, there are a couple uh, studies out there. If you just search PubMed, however, you can't search women's intuition. You have to search cognitive empathy because that is what the research community um, calls it. Uh, and if you, Dr. Daniel Amen, who does the SPECT scans, oh, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of him. Oh, yeah. So he's done thousands of, of SPECT scans on female and male brains. And in comparing the two, he saw that women's brains, because of this enhanced ability for cognitive empathy, are actually wired um, more strongly 
for leadership. And so he actually has a really interesting article about all of that. Um, I don't know what the name of it is. It's been a while since I've looked. But if you looked up Dr. Daniel Amen, uh, female brain spec scan, and I think he does use the word intuition, but he also talks about cognitive empathy because that's what the research community calls it. I love that. And that's also a male publishing that females are fantastic leaders and have that cognitive (laughs) empathy. I love that. You don't hear that very often. Um, Okay. So follicular phase towards the end, good time to physically push ourselves, you know, depending on if our hormones are functioning the way they should. A good time for energy. Um, As you mentioned earlier, as you get close to ovulation at the beginning of luteal, you're looking at maybe fasting a little bit more, putting a little bit more stress on your body during that window. Um, Mm -hmm. Anything to take into account during ovulation? ovulation, that kind of mid-cycle? Is there anything to consider at that point? Yeah. So ovulation is the part of, is the phase that I call the bloom phase, because this is when your estrogen peaks while all of your other hormones are still steadily rising and you have a spike of mood boosting neurochemicals and that serotonin activity is very high in the brain um, as well as high energy production and output during this phase. So again, this is a great time to really push the limits and with biohacking specifically, I like to lean into the benefits of each and lean away from the disadvantages. So just like with menstruation, where when the energy levels are naturally lower, I lean into that. And so I do more meditation, I do more quiet practices, I do more of my mental kind of practices during that phase. And then during ovulation, I push physically, this is when I actually do boost up my energy even more by drinking a little extra coffee taking the nootropics. So I like to lean into the benefit of each phase instead of pushing against something that is not naturally occurring. Yes, yes. And then the last part is that luteal phase. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, that phase. Yeah. So if we're looking at the neurochemistry in the luteal phase, there's the in the right frontal hemisphere of the brain, there is more um, activity happening, as well as a boost in BDNF, brain derived neurotrophic factor, and a boost in GABA. So kind of our superpower during this phase is sleep, really. So um, during this phase, also our progesterone rises to a peak, and we have more sustained energy during this time. So this is good for um, in physical endurance, but also mental endurance. But it's really important during this phase that you make sure to get quality sleep, especially because you're getting that GABA boost during this. So your deep sleep is going to be enhanced. So is this a time for those that do drink alcohol, is this a time to consume less alcohol because that disrupts REM sleep and could kind of hinder that really good quality sleep that you naturally get? Yeah, I would say anything that's going to disrupt your sleep out of all the phases during the luteal phase, that's when I would avoid those things. So drinking, you know, a glass or two of wine at night, even though it might help you to initially fall asleep, it will actually negatively impact your sleep. And you'll, you'll tell if you start using, um, uh, wearables that your heart rate variability tanks, even just with one glass of wine, which is unfortunate. But if you're going to avoid alcohol during any part of the phase, I would say luteal. And this is also a good time to have better sleep hygiene. So making sure you're getting to bed on time and waking up the same time every day, uh, making sure that your room is dark and quiet and that you're not going to be disrupted and just kind of the, the general things you would do to make sure you get a good night's sleep. So you typically will train a little bit harder in the end of the follicular phase around ovulation, and you'll typically Mm -hmm. rest and sleep a little bit more in the luteal phase. Is that correct? Or you were also... Yes, I do. But I also, um, during the beginning of the luteal phase, I still am pushing pretty hard physically, um, though my peak uh, endurance and athletic performance and mental performance is always during ovulation or towards the end of that follicular. Um, but as I go further into the luteal, I, I naturally notice my energy becomes less and less as I come towards menstruation again. And so just listening to that and going ahead and letting my body rest a little bit more and adding in more, um, 
more practices that are restorative, like some yoga or light stretching um, and things like that instead of big endurance training. Um, But during the beginning of that phase, I still do my endurance training and I still really focus on that. But just keeping an eye on how that might be um, affecting my sleep again, because if you train really hard and your body is not well rested, you'll actually notice that your sleep is, um, is negatively impacted. And you were talking about some of the biometrics that you use and heart rate variability was one you mentioned is, well, first of all, when we talk about these kind of wearables, is the BioStrap your favorite? BioStrap's my favorite. Um, I just love the data on it. And it actually gives some really useful comparative data, like you uh, um, correlates of your own day with your own data. And it gives you uh, you versus you can pick like the whole population, or you can pick you versus men, you versus women, you versus women of your age, you versus women of all ages. So I like to look at that. Um, and I think that that data is really useful. And the the um, uh, time period, the intervals in which they collect data for the BioStrap is um, the intervals are smaller. So the data is a lot more accurate. And if there was one kind of biometrics that's your favorite to track, if you had to just pick one of them, what would it be? If I had to just pick one, it'd be HRV, nocturnal HRV, um, just because this tells me a lot about how what I can um, what I can handle the the following day. So if my HRV is low, then I know that I cannot push physically or really mentally that next day. And I may need to eliminate some stressors from my, from my day. Um, if it is high and I'm well rested, that's a great day to push. That's a great day to have a presentation. That's a great day to take on those big business meetings. Um, if you have the ability to change those schedules. Um, so that one's, that's probably my biggest, uh, decision driver. Is there a certain number that you look at for your heart rate variability? Is there, do you have a goal, like a personal goal? Mm. So my personal goal is to always stay above 100, but I don't want people to get caught up on the number listening to this because it's really important just to measure your baseline. So measure your HRV for the first week or so, five days is fine, um, to find out where your average heart rate variability is overnight. Um, And then work to improve that number. So some people, their baseline will be like in the 30s. And that's not necessarily good or bad, but what you want to focus on is improving from there. So when I first started tracking, I was probably somewhere in the 80s. um, And over time, I've been able to consistently keep myself up above 100. So I know when I dip back down to the 80s or even below that, that I have some work to do. So a big thing we've talked about a lot is establishing your own baseline and tracking your own data. Uh, And so I think both of those are really important tools. So tracking your cycle, paying attention to how you feel during each part of your cycle, uh, using apps like Clue, and I think blending that even with heart rate variability to better understand how your body is recovering in each phase. I think those are some really good kind of initial things for our listeners to start with. Yes, absolutely. I would say if if all women um, could start doing this for themselves, then we will start to see systemic level change because it really does start with us. And then, um, as you know, as a business owner and the leader of your family, um, when women are working on themselves and optimizing themselves, really full communities benefit from it. Everyone around them benefits because women are, you know, by by nature caretakers and they are doing a lot for those around them. So if they're well taken care of, then their community is well taken care of as well. Gosh, I love that. Uh, and then my last kind of two questions, I know we could talk about this forever and I'm gonna have to bring you Uh, back on for part two. But what is a health myth that you want to bust? Hmm. Um, I don't know if it's a health myth, but it's very common in like the entrepreneurial um, communities and in the biohacking community, unfortunately, too, which is um, grind, right? You got to grind to be happy. You got to grind to be successful. You got to grind to be healthy, meaning you have to do all these biohacks. Um, 
I would love to dispel that myth because I think that life can come with ease and health can come with ease and success can come with ease if we choose that. Um, it doesn't have to be a grind. And I think that that's also like a, a society level subconscious program that we have all been instilled with from childhood that I would like to see shift. And I think that, you know, a lot of that, too, is the comparison. You know, you see what everybody else is doing and pushing to be, you know, more and more and more and more is not always more. Uh, I think that's a really good health myth. And that's a great reminder to me. Uh, I'm one of those. I think personalities are very interesting to me. I don't know if you've done anything with the Enneagram. (laughs) I could get, you know, way off on a on a tangent. Uh, But for me, I just I see opportunity in everything. And so sometimes it's hard for me to say no. And it's hard for me to find that balance and the restoration. And having my daughter was one of the first times that I realized that it's not about the grind and it's okay to say no. And um, health and wellness and mindset uh, can shift when you actually do say no and you have some time uh, where you're Mm -hmm. not running from one thing to another. And then I always, I really, yeah. I like to end this show because it's all about little by, um, and it's little by little, little becomes a lot. What are some small changes that our listeners can start doing today to become their best self? Sleep. <laughs> I think uh, sleep has become a biohack, which is funny because it's fundamental for human function and for our brain health. But we really do need quality sleep. So that is one of my non-negotiables. After 10 p.m., I'm just I'm not going to take the meeting. I'm not going to work on schoolwork. I'm not going to stay up watching that show that I really want to watch that I didn't have time to watch during the day because I need quality sleep. And so does everyone else for me to function at my highest level and be able to do all the things that I want to do throughout the day. Do you think people really have uh, different amounts of sleep their body needs? Or do you think that we've kind of told ourselves that and we really all need eight hours of sleep a night? Uh, so <laughs> that's interesting. I, I've looked into circadian biology quite a lot. And that's actually one of the units in the power program that we spend two months on. And so there is some interesting research around chronotypes. Um, again, this research doesn't necessarily include women. But um, I think that everyone needs at least seven hours of sleep. Um, Now, I think that some people might require closer to nine um, and some people might thrive on seven, but I don't think that there's there's anyone who's gonna thrive consistently on less than seven hours of sleep. Yes, yeah, I agree. I know I've I've met with some of my patients and they're like, I really, I do great on four hours of sleep. And I'm like, you might think you do great on four hours of sleep now, but that is aging you because when you look at, you know, the percentage of the deep and the REM sleep and what's happening on a cellular level within our body when we do sleep, I think, you know, that's key. You said it. Sleep is a biohacking technique. Um, So listeners, uh, if you are a female, start tracking your cycle, start becoming familiar with your cycle, how you feel during each phase of your cycle. Uh, If there's one biometric that Kayla recommends, it's that heart rate variability if there's some small changes you can start doing now, it's prioritizing your sleep, um, not being afraid of those good healthy fats, choosing quality of our food over uh, kind of quantity. So making sure we're eating whole nutritious foods. Um, I really love that MCT oil tip to kind of boost our mental performance um, and kind of giving yourself a rest between dinner and breakfast. And it, that that window can look different for people. Uh, Kayla mentioned anywhere from really 12 hours to 20 hours. So listen to your own body. And if people want more information on what you're doing with BioCurious and the power program, where can they find you, Kayla? Yeah. So um, for the ladies listening, I would love to hear your feedback and have you check out powerprogram.org and that's power with an H. So P-O-W-H-E-R program.org. And then my website and opportunities to work with me are all listed on biocuriouskayla.com. And I would love to connect on Instagram or Clubhouse. Um, My handle on Instagram is at biocurious underscore Kayla. Um, and of course there's a BioCurious podcast that you can check out. And for those who are new and interested in clubhouse is a great, uh, platform for expansive com- 
conversations. Um, and I am holding regular conversations about the women's health science gap every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Um, so join me on there. You can just search for my name, Kayla Osterhoff. I've never even heard of Clubhouse before. Oh my gosh, I'll get you on there. I have an invite. Okay, I need to get on there. It's amazing. And you guys, be sure to connect with Kayla and follow her on Instagram. She seriously is a wealth of knowledge. This is barely just scratching the surface of what Kayla knows. So we are going to have you back on, I am sure, for another podcast. And thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day to talk with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. And I would love to have another conversation. I could talk about this stuff all day. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. And as always, remember, little by little, a little becomes a lot. Even the smallest changes over time can lead to total mind and body transformation. I'd love for you to stay connected with at Dr. Kristen Oja and at Stat Wellness on Instagram. And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. I'd love to hear from you.